This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. June 18th through the 24th is National Pollinator Week, a week dedicated in the United States to studying, celebrating, and advocating for the incredible diversity of insect life that in many ways makes our lives on this planet possible. But perhaps as importantly, they make our lives more rich and far more fascinating. In appreciation of all insects, but specifically our pollinating insects, we're joined today by British biologist, conservationist, and professor of biology at the University of Sussex in England, Dave Goulson. A gardener, husband, father, and bumblebee expert, Dave is the founder of the Bumblebee Conservation Trust and author of Gardening for Bumblebees, A Sting in the Tail, My Adventures with Bumblebees, and A Buzz in the Meadow, The Natural History of a French Farm. He is also the founder of the International Bumblebee Conservation Trust. Dave joins us today via Skype from his family home and garden in Sussex. Welcome, Dave. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I would love to have you start by describing for listeners your current work in the world of pollinator research. I study bumblebees mainly. Bumblebees are the the, the kind of the big furry bees, They're often the commonest of the wild bees. And I mainly study the factors affecting their decline. So there's this really kind of concerning decline of bumblebees which, and other bees, which has been going on now, we think, for many years. And I'm trying to unravel why they're declining and and trying to fix it, trying to make sure that they that we don't lose any more of them, that it, they don't continue to decline, uh, and that we have a, a, a healthy supply of bees into the future. Yeah. Bumblebees are a, a pretty big group of really beautiful, lovable bees. And I know you are a specialist in them, and you are also a great lover and advocate for them. You have multiple books, including A Sting in the Tail, that gives quite a lot of lovely information about how you became interested and engaged with this part of our world. You then have a follow-up book called A Buzz in the Meadow, and then more recently, a new book entitled Bee Quest. Could you start by describing for listeners some of the earliest influences you cover in A Sting in the Tale about your childhood and your ongoing love affair with bumblebees? Well, so there's a famous American entomologist called E.O. Wilson, and he he said that, uh, you know, every child goes through a bug phase and that he just never grew out of his. And I kind of feel the same. I, I don't know why, but I just always loved the natural world, but particularly insects of one sort or another. It wasn't just bees, but anything that, that crept and crawled that I could find and put in a jam jar and keep in my bedroom windowsill or whatever. My, I, I, my, actually, my earliest memory of bumblebees specifically is a slightly tragic one. When I was about seven years old, as far as I remember, I discovered some bumblebees that had kind of got caught out in the rain and they were sit, sitting all bedraggled on these flowers. I, I kind of thought I'd try and rescue them. So I collected them up and I took them into the house and I thought I needed to dry them out. So I, I popped them on the hot plate of our electric cooker and put it on really low. 
And I, put, I even made a little blanket out of tissue paper and put it on top of them. And, uh, but then, then being young, it was one of these cookers that took ages to warm up. So I got, I got bored and I wandered off and I kind of forgot about them for a few minutes. And, and next thing I knew, there was smoke billowing from the cooker and the poor bees had been mm. frazzled. And that was the end of them. So, um, so my first memory of bumblebees wasn't a positive one for the, for the bumblebees. No. And I sometimes think I've been spending the rest of my career trying to... <laughs> To make up for that day but yeah so I, I grew up chasing butterflies and and burning bees and whatever it was I was up to as a kid and just never stopped really yeah I, a lot of kids do grow out of it and it's something that actually I think is, is so, somewhat concerning that, that many teenagers are frightened of insects you know mm. so we go from being four five six years old when we're naturally fascinated by creepy crawlies to 10 years later it seems that most most teenagers are are frightened. They think it's anything that buzzes is going to sting them or bite them or give them a disease or something. Right. <laughs> Crawl in their ear and lay eggs. I don't know. And that's really sad. Um, and obviously it doesn't bode well for the future if we've got generations of people growing up frightened of and unfamiliar with the natural world. Mm-hmm. So you were born in 1965 and you grow up with this great love and curiosity. You go off to university and you come back. And in the first book, A Sting in the Tail, you, you describe this big shift that basically takes place as a result of a confluence of different factors in the English countryside and in our agro-industrial world that lead to some major changes in, and you notice them in this period of your life, sort of the early 1980s. Talk a little bit about that, that I think is is kind of what starts to propel you into the specialty you've chosen. I was always interested in sort of uh, conserving, looking after nature, but I guess I was, I was going to say unlucky enough, I'm not sure what the term is. I have lived through, as, as have many people, a period which has been pretty unkind to, to nature, sadly. And mm. certainly by my late teens, I was aware of, for example, hedges being ripped out. Me and my friends used to roam around the countryside near our home. We lived in a little village and I used to walk a couple of miles across the fields to school. And when I started walking to school, I I had to cross something like half a dozen fields. By the time I was in my late teens, it was just one big field. You know, hedge after hedge had been ripped out and it was all part of this decades of of intensification of farming, that farming pretty kind of started, I guess, towards the beginning of the 20th century before I was around. Um, But it was really uh, accelerating during the the 60s and 70s and 80s. And so we moved from a kind of landscape where there were quite a lot of flowers, lots of small fields. Uh, There were lots of hay meadows um, used to provide hay for, for, for livestock, which were full of flowers and into an era where we have these huge monocultures of fields with very few hedgerows, um, lots of pesticides being used, very few weeds. And, and at the same time, we've seen this, this dramatic decline in, in wildlife, not just bees, but um, birds, butterflies, uh, and so on. In fact, I was recently involved in a, a study from Germany, mm-hmm. uh, data collected by German entomologists that was was published late in uh, last year, 2017, where the, these German guys had been putting what are called malaise traps there. They kind of look a bit like a tent, but it's uh, 
it's a kind of trap for flying insects. And they've been putting these traps out all over Germany for um, since the late 1980s. Um, and the, the daily catch of insects that they'd caught dropped by 76 percent between 1989 and 2014, mm. um, which I, I must admit, I, I was sort of became involved at the at the stage of analyzing the data and trying to make sense of it and trying to write it up for, to publish it in a journal. But that period um, sort of, you know, coincides with with my lifetime experience of, of you know, watching insects disappear, watching wildlife disappear. And I must admit, I, I even having spent a lifetime watching insects, I, I was shocked by the scale of the decline measured in Germany. Mm -hmm. Three quarters of our insects gone in just 26 years. And um, and that's after a period when they've probably been declining for many decades. So it's the actual figure is that we've, we've very likely lost an awful lot more than three quarters of our insects. Right. Um, and that depresses the hell out of me and, and is something that everyone should be talking about and mm -hmm. aware of and doing something to fix. Yeah, it's heartbreaking it, and it's, it's gut-wrenching. It should feel like a punch in the stomach to anyone who eats, anyone who breathes, anyone yeah, who absolutely. wants to live on a healthy planet. And the work you are doing is clearly trying to not only stay on top of this research from a scientific basis, but also hold this conversation in a public forum that is accessible to anybody and and have that conversation make sense and hit home and hopefully incite action and personal investment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the only way we are going to fix this problem is by getting everybody or, or at least most people engaged. And at, at the moment, um, I think still the majority of the population are not really that interested you know they they don't care about insects they probably don't like them very much they they uh, you know think of them as kind of annoying creatures but whether you like like them or not people should be aware of just how important they are and mm -hmm. again i don't think people are they they might dimly be aware that bees pollinate some of their food from some of our crops but that's just a little part of what insects do you know they're actually at the heart of of everything really, of, 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 of ecosystems, of food chains, of food webs. And, um, so not only are they responsible for pollinating about three quarters of our crops and 87% of wild plant species, um, but they're also, uh, they do a, bun a bunch of other things. They, they make up the majority of life on earth. They recycle dung and dead trees and leaves and dead animals. And so they keep the soils healthy. They're uh, predators of, of crop pests. Um, they're food for so many things, for, for most species of bird, for bats, for lots of ground-dwelling mammals, for lizards, frogs, and so on and so on. So basically, this, if we're really losing our insects at the speed we seem to be, it is potentially catastrophic. I would argue at length why it's important to look after insects for selfish reasons, because of pollination and, and all the other things they do. But I, actually, the reason I want to look after insects is, is, is not anything to do with those. It's because I think they're cool, they're beautiful, they're, mm. they're amazing things. I always feel if I could only persuade people to stop for five minutes and get down on their hands and knees and, and look at these things, uh, they'd realize that. But most people are t too busy or just never have the inclination to do so. Um, yeah, insects, are, there's, there's at least, a, well, we've named about a million species of insect on the planet. 
Um, it includes all sorts of weird and wonderful creatures. Um, and they, they, whether or not they're valuable to us, surely they you know, deserve their place on, on the planet. I sometimes, if you think too much about it, it all just seems absurd that we live on this funny rock floating through space, you know, hurtling along at thousands of miles an hour. And it's just got this little skin of life clinging to its surface. And we're lucky enough to, to be born at all, which is remarkable, but to be born on a planet with, with in total, perhaps as many as 10 million species, most of which we haven't even named and most of which we know nothing about at all, is completely extraordinary and, and almost unbelievable. Um, and, and so I, I think it, I just find it really sad that we're, we're laying waste to the planet in the way that we are um, and, and losing these amazing creatures before we even find out anything about them. So to come to bumblebees, which are, I guess, my favorites, I, I got hooked on studying bumblebees because they, they're actually really clever. They're, they're, um, I mean, insects are beautiful, fascinating, but most of them aren't the brightest creatures on the planet, if we're honest. Um, but bees are kind of like the intellectual giants of the insect world. For example, they have all sorts of tricks that enable them to, uh, to gather food from flowers very efficiently and effectively, uh, which of course is partly why they're such good pollinators. They can navigate long distances to find patches of flowers and find their way back again without ever getting lost. They can use the sun as a compass, the Earth's magnetic field as a compass. They can memorize landmarks. They can very quickly learn how to get into really complicated flowers. So some flowers have evolved to make it hard for bees to find the rewards. But bees are pretty adept at working that out. Um, the thing that I first actually, as a scientist, as a sort of adult, the thing that I first started studying about bumblebees was relates to um, something that anyone can see uh, and that kind of intrigued me. So if you if you watch a bee in a patch of flowers, you'll find that she flies from flower to flower, of course, but she doesn't land on every flower. She often will fly up close to a flower and at the last second will will veer away as if there's something wrong with it. And I saw this about 25 years ago now and I couldn't explain what they were doing, you know, why they were sort of apparently rejecting some of the flowers. And I spent about five years studying it with a, a PhD student, um, Jane Stout. And um, together we kind of worked out what was going on. And, and basically the bees, they sniff a flower very, very quickly with their antennae before they land on it. And what they're doing is they're sniffing the flower for the, the faint, smelly footprint of a previous bee visitor. And if they, if, if they can smell that another bee has landed on that flower recently, that tells them that the reward, the nectar and the pollen will have been taken. And so there's no point wasting time landing. Um, and it, so, so nobody knew that bees did that. I mean, it may be a small contribution to the sum of knowledge in the world, but that was kind of a, something we discovered. And uh, that, I guess, is one of the joys of scientific research is mm -hmm. getting to find out brand new stuff that no one ever knew before. They also have, uh, bumblebees have these really interesting and complicated social lives in the, in the hive. Um, people sometimes argue that, that um, you know, that bees are a, a kind of model society that we should we should learn from um, where the the worker bees the daughters all work selflessly altruistically to look after their mum uh, the queen but then bumblebee queens will often eat their grandchildren for example which is probably <laughs> something we shouldn't copy um, 
and and the workers at the end of the season will often actually gang up and kill their mother the queen um for complicated reasons i could explain if we had several hours but um but anyway so 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 there's this uh, there's this rather dark side to them as well which kind of fascinates me mm-hmm. um but there's still tons we 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 don't know um right. about even these common insects about how many species of bumblebees do we know and and what characterizes a bumblebee from any other bee so there are about 250 uh, species of bumblebee in the world that we know of and we probably know of most of them Um, as a as a group they uh, are characterized by being very unusually large um, for for bees Um, they're big they're furry they're, they're primarily adapted, they're quite weird insects in that bumblebees are kind of cold climate specialists. Um, so most insects are much more abundant in, in warm climates, um, in the tropics or in Mediterranean regions. Um, but bumblebees are up there, there are most species in cool, temperate, mountainous areas. So, so the, the Rocky Mountains are great, the Alps mm. in Europe, the Himalayas are fantastic for them. California is is at the sort of warm on a bit on the warm side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You do have plenty, but they're kind of on the edge. They they just overheat. So the reason they're large and furry is to is to enable them to keep warm. They're weird insects in that they produce their own heat internally. Um, so I remember being taught at school that insects are cold blooded and and only mammals and uh, birds are warm blooded meaning that we have a, a regulated, stable body temperature. We produce heat internally and we shiver and sweat and, and whatever to, to regulate that temperature. Um, and that insect body temperature just basically follows the sort of ambient air temperature. So they like to live in warm places. Um, but for bumblebees, that's not true. They, they generate heat internally from their flight muscles. They flap their wings really fast, about 200 times a second when they're uh, flying. And that creates loads of heat and they keep that in with with the fur and so a bumblebee can can fly around when the air temperature is close to freezing um in fact there's a species called bombus polaris which lives in the arctic circle uh, and it can happily fly around when there's snow on the ground when most insects would be too cold to move um so that that's kind of one of the key interesting features of bumblebees but it, it does mean that they don't they literally overheat in warmer climates and they tend to fizzle out uh, as you head towards the equator. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. It's National Pollinator Week, and in appreciation and the spirit of learning ever more about the companions who make our lives possible, we're joined by Dr. Dave Goulson, biologist and professor at the University of Sussex, England. Dave is the author of several books on the richness of the insect world. He is also the founder of the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. We'll be back to hear more and learn more from Dave's life spent studying insects, bees, and his favorites, the bumblebees. Stay with us. Hey, it's me, Jennifer. As I speak with you, it is a beautiful summer solstice in our gardens. As with all of these celestial thresholds, the solstices and the equinoxes, the full moons and the new moons, these moments of turning written in the stars literally, I feel a sense of weight and import. 
far more primal than calendar moments. They are asking to be acknowledged, and they are asking without question to be seen and heard and felt and appropriately recognized. How do we do this? How do we do this meaningfully? I'm not sure. I'm really not. But I do know that for me, being a gardener has something to do with it, as much as being a mother, a partner, a thinker, or a citizen. To be a gardener is to throw myself into the fray of life with the bees and the bugs and the birds and the weather. It's a full contact commitment. And if I have done even one thing right in my life, I pray that I have passed even a small sense of this intertwined destiny with the life of my garden and its home planet onto my daughters. Listening to Dave Goulson speak of his early life and the support and encouragement he got from his grandparents and his parents, the field guides, the dissecting kits, and simple allowance for time spent outdoors, sometimes messy and disgusting, in the marvelous and mysterious muck of life, this was so crucial to him becoming who he is, to his work and his heart and his advocacy Gah, may we all learn to encourage such heartfelt engagement with the dangers and the delights of the natural world in our little people, in our big people, no matter how messy, no matter how many other things seem more important at any given time. The more of these conversations I have with fellow gardeners and nature lovers like you all, the more I think there might be very few other occupations as important as this one we call gardening. Which brings me to thank you, again, always, for listening and learning along with me. You are an ever-expanding community of people who write to me and comment on Instagram and Facebook, who respond with pictures and thoughts to the monthly View From Here newsletter, who generously share the program forward with others. Your feedback means the world to me and Sarah and Cultivating Place, so thank you. This is a listener and community-supported endeavor, and you are every bit as much a part of my garden life as the birds and the bees and the bugs and the beauty. Now, back to our conversation in celebration and fervent, urgent hope for our insects and us with Dave Goulson. This internal regulation system and the ability to stay warm in cold temperatures but to overheat in warm temperatures is directly related, it seemed to me in in the book, the way you describe it, is directly related to how much food they need within a certain amount of time and therefore how important it is to have a good amount of food in the form of pollen and nectar within relatively close proximity to where the bumblebees live particularly for the queens actually so the bumblebees although they're social they live in a colony the colony starts with a single queen in the spring which is completely different to honeybees by the way um, where the, the queen is never on her own she's always with thousands of daughters uh, in bumblebees the, the queen has to build a nest on her own uh, starting in in uh, in early spring when it's quite cold and she has to not only incubate her brood to keep them warm, but also dash out to, to 
to find nectar to fuel that incubation and to feed uh, to the offspring. Uh, and so uh, it's a really kind of precarious time in early spring when the poor queen must be working absolutely flat out trying to, to look after her brood single-handed. But more broadly, uh, bumblebees, although the, so this, this producing heat internally is a, it enables them to fly in cold weather and live high up in the mountains and so on. But the, there is a huge cost to it, which is that it's, it's hugely energetically expensive. Mm. Uh, and it's, just, it's a bit of a daft statistic. If you compare them to, to a person, so a, a running man burns the calories in a, in a Mars bar in, in about an hour of running, um, roughly. If you, if you had a, a man-sized bumblebee, which obviously is a bit daft, but just imagine it, wouldn't that be cool? But anyway, um, that would burn the, the calories in a Mars bar in 30 seconds of flying. Mm. So basically, they need tons of sugar. Right. Uh, which they can only get from, from flowers. The bees on, only feed on nectar and pollen from flowers. And it's, it's the, nectar in, uh, the sugar in the nectar that fuels all of that activity. So if there aren't enough flowers, they can't, they basically, they run out of energy, they can't fly. Um, they'll end up like those poor bedraggled bees that I set light to when I was a kid. Um, they're, they're in trouble, basically. Um, and so if there aren't enough flowers in the landscape, then, then bees, bumblebees will struggle to thrive. I think one of the things that really surprised me that I didn't understand or, or it hadn't absorbed for me is that bumblebees, I think this is true actually of all bees, are unusual in that they need pollen and nectar for all stages of their life cycle. Yeah, I, absolutely. And that's why bees are such important pollinators. So um, the bees evolved from wasps, um, we think probably about 120 million years ago. Um, and essentially bees are kind of vegetarian wasps. Um, instead of feeding their offspring on on usually other insects or spiders, which is what their ancestors did. Um, some wasp back in the age of the dinosaurs decided to start feeding its offspring on pollen and nectar. All bees are descended from that, that species. But that makes them more or less unique. So um, there are lots of insects like uh, butterflies and hoverflies and, and so on that visit flowers as an adult to get a little bit of energy to fuel them to flap around a bit more. But the immature stages, the maggots, the caterpillars, whatever, eat something completely different. Obviously, in the case of butterflies, they, the caterpillars eat leaves. But bees eat pollen and nectar throughout their life. That's all they eat, more or less. And because the, the immature stage is, is a little grub, um, it hasn't even got legs, it's uh, completely incapable of going to find its own food. So the, in bees, the adults provide all the food for, for their offspring and for themselves. Um, so, and that's why they have to visit so many flowers that they, um, they're basically highly specialized creatures and their, their whole life cycle is based on flowers. Um, so in the case of the, of the bumblebee, um, the, the queen, she start early season, she finds herself a nest site. Um, usually it's a hole in the ground, um, ideally with an old mouse nest or something similar to provide insulation. And she gathers a little ball of pollen. She lays those 16 eggs. She sits on it and, and shivers to generate heat and keep the brood warm so that it grows quickly. Um, and then she dashes out um, to, to find more nectar and more pollen to feed to the offspring as they grow. Um, and if all goes well and she can find enough flowers, after about a month after she laid those eggs, 
they they become adult daughters, um, worker bumblebees. Um, and at that point, she then, you can imagine her stress levels fall considerably because she doesn't have to go and find food anymore. Mm. She leaves all of that to her daughters and she just then becomes a kind of egg laying machine and sits in the nest. She never leaves her nest again. Uh, and the daughters later in the spring take over. Uh, and they, they look exactly like the mum, but they're just smaller versions of her. And then the nest grows through the spring um, and by midsummer, um, in, in temperate regions, um, maybe a bit earlier in California, they, the, the nest might have two or three hundred workers all helping their mum. And then it switches to producing males and, and new queens. And they fly off from the, from the nest, they mate. Those young queens, they just mate once. The males, that's their only job. They, they, they don't collect food apart from for themselves. Um, they don't guard the nest. They haven't got a sting, actually, so they wouldn't be much good at guarding the nest. Um, uh, their job is just to mate. And actually, it's slightly slightly kind of um, sad in a way that there are many more males, about seven times as many males born as, as young queens. And the young queens only mate with one male. So that means that six out of seven of these uh, male bumblebees never get to do what they were born to do, which uh, seems a shame. But anyway, that's, that's, that's their life. <laughs> And as soon as they've, they've mated, those young queens uh, burrow into the ground and, and sleep right through to the following spring um, with the, the sperm stored inside them from that, that mating that they'll use to produce their daughters next year. And the old nest fizzles out. But the whole life cycle is, from, from late winter, early spring through to summer is all fueled by, by flowers, basically pollen and nectar from flowers. That's all that, that any stage of the bee eats. We have a whole groups of bumblebees where, where I am, and they are very active right now. And they are, you know, at the, the risk of anthropomorphizing a creature. They are just so wonderful to watch. They are, they are funny, and they are active, and they are social, even, you know, outside of their nests. And they're very different than the honeybee, uh, which compared to a honeybee, how effective a pollinator, just for reference point, are the bumblebees, Dave? Well, it depends very much on, on the plant that they're pollinating. Mm -hmm. um, honeybees are often the, the most abundant uh, pollinator species, but they're not always the most effective. In particular, there are some kinds of, of plants, including some important crops, that need to be what's called buzz pollinated. Um, the flower actually needs to be vibrated to, for the pollen to come out. They have the, the flowers have evolved this rather weird design where the pollen is, it's, if you imagine, an, it's a bit like an upturned pepper pot. Mm -hmm. um, and it, you have, it has to be shaken for the pollen to fall out of the hole at the bottom. So the flowers of tomatoes and chili peppers and aubergines uh, and potatoes, uh, they're all examples of plants that require buzz pollination. And honeybees are completely useless at it. They've never worked out how to do it. So honeybees are completely hopeless at pollinating those things. Also, blueberries is another example. Whereas bumblebees uh, and uh, some solitary bee species are really adept at doing that. They, the, uh, the bumblebee flies up, bites the flower with her mandibles, and then buzzes her flight muscles to shake the whole flower, catches the pollen as it drops out the bottom. Um, so in that instance, the, the, almost all of the pollination is done by bumblebees rather than honeybees. Mm. And then there are, there are things like runner beans and broad beans that we often grow in our gardens in Britain, 
um, which have really deep flowers uh, where the nectar is hidden at the end of a tube. And in that case, honeybees can't reach the nectar because honeybees have really short tongues. But some species of bumblebee have really long tongues and are specialists on visiting these deep flowers. So in that instance, it's specifically long-tongued bumblebees that pollinate the crop. But basically, um, different crops tend to be better or worse pollinated by different bees or sometimes hoverflies or beetles or wasps or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the message I always try and get across to people is we really need, if we want a kind of resilient, healthy pollination service for all of our crops and our wildflowers, then we need to look after all of them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, relying on, on honeybees alone is kind of crazy. So I mean, many people mistakenly think that honeybees pollinate everything. And in fact, I, I fear that quite a lot of people out there think that there's just one species of bee mm. and it makes honey and lives in a box and <laughs> pollinates everything. Mm -hmm. And of course it isn't true. There are 20,000 species of bee in the world that we know of. Yeah. Uh, one is the, the, the domestic honeybee. And so we really shouldn't pin all our hopes on this one species delivering everything. Um, and I, the, the case of the almonds, of course, is, is perhaps the most famous example where we've ended up in a situation where an entire industry, um, it, the, it's a very large proportion of the entire global production of almonds is, is, comes from California. Mm. Uh, and it's all dependent on honeybees. In fact, it, it requires almost every hive in the whole of North America is shipped to California for that brief period when the almonds are, are blooming. Right. And if anything should happen, if the, if the honeybee population should fall much further, um, you know, imagine a disease outbreak or, or any, I mean, we're, we're all aware that honeybees have had lots of health problems in recent years. If something were to happen, the almond crop would fail. Mm -hmm. um, and that would obviously be catastrophic for for the almond growers. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me they'd be wise to have a backup plan and that backup plan ought to be looking after their wild bees, yes. uh, which hasn't gone so well up till now. I'm Jennifer Jewell and this is Cultivating Place. Have you ever spent time just observing the insect diversity in your garden? It's a fascinating way to spend 15 minutes or so. Bee and pollinating fly diversity alone in the average home garden is pretty remarkable. Recently, my partner, plantsman and photographer John Whittlesey, discovered a colony of California bumblebees, Bombus californicus, nesting near his foothills home garden. He and I have been watching them. When they wake up, when they go to bed, what flowers they collect pollen and nectar from, with delight and interest and care. There's something very immediate and tangible about knowing they live right here with us. They don't just fly in from somewhere else. They live right here. It really underlines the knowledge that these bees, and all wildlife, are family to us, not other than us. And as with any family, there's an imperative to support them. We'll be back after a break to hear more about the dangers facing all of our bees and some sources of hope for them with Dave Goulson, biologist and founder of the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. Stay with us. So I'm not kidding, really not kidding. When was the last time you went into the garden or sat along the verge of your favorite trail and set aside time to just look? I want you to do it. You think I'm kidding, but I'm not. I really want you to do it. And really, 
I'd love you to follow this up with taking a photo of yourself doing this and post it to me or on your favorite social media platform and tag Cultivating Place because there is nothing, nothing more interesting than a few minutes spent in conscious observation of the life of the garden or the trail in the full sun of a summer day. It might seem peaceful and quiet, but even with all the destruction we as humans have inflicted, life is buzzing all around out there, waiting to be heard. John was so excited when he called to tell me about having finally found the nest of the bumblebees near his garden. And we have been watching them ever since, wondering how to make the garden even better, even bigger to provide them with more food and more habitat. At least three different species of bumblebees forage in his garden, the yellow face, the black face, and then Bombus californicus, which are the most active right now. They all have distinct looks and behaviors, and once you start getting to know them, they are so interesting. They are funny, they are smart, they are resourceful, they are so gentle, and they're very focused on eating, sleeping, and mating, so there's nothing to be afraid of. So far, they seem to love the salvias, the agostaces, the monardella, and the lavender. We're now strategizing as to what we should be adding, what we should be multiplying and dividing to provide even more nutritious bloom right through the summer, and what we should be planning on adding for more early spring bloom next spring. It's so clear to us that no matter how caring we were before this about our bees and bugs and birds and life generally, the more you know on a personal basis, the more you care on a truly personal basis, because it's all personal. Sometimes it's easy to forget that, but with these bumblebees as our neighbors and our garden as their closest market, we do not want to let them down. Okay, now back to our conversation with Dave Goulson. I know some of it is hard to hear. It's really disheartening. But when closer to the end of the conversation, he points out, all the ways we can and do make a difference, I hope it fires you up like it does me. And definitely make sure to visit the episode show notes at cultivatingplace.com this week. The photos are fabulous and very life-affirming. There are efforts underway, and I, I think we as advocates, as gardeners, as nature lovers, as eaters, need to, and as active participants in the economy and the ecology of these big agricultural regions, need to be engaged. We need to be part of the of the conversation and advocate for the things we then begin to understand. For instance, here in our region, you know, for many years, like you described with your fields and hedgerows, it didn't occur to people that it was a bad thing that the almond orchards were taking over more and more and more space and they were beautiful in the spring in bloom, but it wasn't made completely clear that when they stopped blooming, this was a wasteland for all insects until the next bloom period. And I think as that dawned on both agricultural um, providers and farmers and management people, it also became more clear to just the gardening and nature-loving public. And now there are efforts underway. Clearly, a lot more need to be done, and it needs to happen a lot more quickly. 
if we're going to make a dent soon enough. So bringing us to that, habitat loss is a huge issue. You talked a little bit about the use of pesticides earlier. Walk us through the greatest threats that you see to all, all of our insects at this point, and specifically as well bumblebees, and, and maybe touch a little bit, if you would, on the use of neonicotinoids and other pesticide groups. Sure. So broadly, I think the, the, the biggest threat to, uh, to wild insect populations is, is the way we have chosen to grow food, and that's a, that's a rather sweeping statement. But essentially, as with the, the almonds in California, we've, uh, we've gone down this route of huge monoculture cropping, which over time became more and more reliant on lots of chemical inputs, fertilizers and pesticides. Uh, and we've, we've managed to, to essentially create huge monocultures with very few weeds. Uh, the almonds, as you say, there's nothing underneath them. Um, when, when they stop flowering, there's nothing there for, for anything to, to live on. You know, there are no flowers, there are, there are no leaves, there's nothing apart from, and if you, unless you're a pest of almonds, there is nothing for you. And the same, of course, is true of actually a huge proportion of the world now, be it under wheat or canola or whatever it might be. Uh, the same things apply, that we've essentially made big chunks of the, of the world hostile to more or less all forms of life apart from the crop and pests of the crop. And of course we need to feed people, but I personally question whether we're doing it the right way, whether we're doing it in a sustainable way, uh, or whether the price of the way we're doing it is just too high. And I think there are alternatives that we should be seriously investigating. But to come back to specifics, so from a bee's perspective, there, there are really three kind of uh, issues that bees face. One of them is only very indirectly to do with farming, and that's that's diseases. So we have accidentally moved bee diseases around the world um, over many hundreds of years uh, with honeybees primarily, because honeybees are good pollinators and we like the honey. Um, we took them to the Americas. Uh, of course, honeybees aren't native to the Americas at all. They're not native to Australia or New Zealand. They're they actually came from southeastern Europe, but now they're a global species. Unfortunately, when we moved them, we took a whole bunch of bee diseases with them, um, including viruses. The varroa mite is perhaps one of the best known, um, various other bacterial and fungal diseases. And the problem with that is, so wild bees naturally have a whole range of diseases, but they tend to be diseases that they've encountered for a long time for thousands or millions of years. And so they have a degree of resistance. But if a new disease is brought to um, the Americas or, or wherever, that can be much more devastating in its effects. And we know, for example, there's a type of Asian bee diarrhea, um, thing called Nisima surani, which is a bee disease from Asia, which is now all over the world and can be really harmful to wild bees like bumblebees. The other two issues are much more general. One is that we've just lost flowers, that we, we've simplified the landscape enormously. And if, if you're a bee, you need flowers. If there aren't flowers, then in the case of social bees like bumblebees, you need flowers right through the season. So you need a nice continuity, a diversity of flowers to keep them going. And the, the, the modern world is, is sadly lacking in, in flowers. Um, but then when the bees do find a little patch of flowers somewhere or a flowering crop like canola, 
there's a very good chance that it's contaminated with pesticides. This is something that my research group's been studying in Sussex, and um, it's pretty alarming, actually, if, if, if you ask a farmer to, to give you a list of the pesticides they apply to each field. It's a long list. We did this, and typically the, the fields around here where I'm sitting are, are treated with maybe 20 different pesticides each year. Mm. It, this is normal practice. These aren't bad farmers at all. They're just doing what everyone else does, following the advice of their agronomist. And that includes a whole range of insecticides and also fungicides and herbicides and molluscicides. So if you're a, a, a bee foraging in farmland, you're encountering a whole cocktail of pesticides all year round. People have sampled honey uh, and pollen from uh, bee nests and analyzed it for pesticides. And you, it, it's absolutely jam full, which is really sad, actually, because we think of honey as a rather natural and delicious food. And there's one particular group of pesticides which are a major cause for concern because they're, they're really highly toxic to bees, which are the neonicotinoids. A group of insecticides that were developed and introduced in the mid-1990s, and they've become the biggest selling insecticides in the world. They're neurotoxins that attack the brain of the bee, and they're systemic chemicals. So the idea is that they're applied to crops and they spread through the crop and protect it against any kind of insect pest, which from a farmer's perspective is attractive. But the downside is if it's a flowering crop, they go into the pollen and the nectar and then bees get poisoned. More recently, it's, it's uh, emerged, and this is partly work that we've done. It turns out that they're commonly in wildflowers growing in the edges of fields, mm. which is really concerning because we encourage farmers these days to put in flowering plants in the edges of their fields to try and encourage pollinators. But sadly, these chemicals, the neonicotinoids, they contaminate the soil and they're sucked up by the roots of wildflowers growing near the crop and they get contaminated that way. There was a, a recent a scientific study published where they, they got honey, honey samples from around the world or literally every continent, lots, uh, um, most countries, and analyzed them for neonicotinoids. And 75% of honey samples globally um, contained these neurotoxins that kill bees. That ought to be really alarming for everybody. And if I could just explain how toxic they are. So the, the toxicity is normally measured as a, the, the LD50, which stands for the lethal dose that kills 50% um, of your test animals. And the honeybee is a standard test animal for pesticides. Uh, so the LD50 for, for the most commonly used neonicotinoids is about four billionths of a, of a gram per bee which is obviously not very much. To put that in context, that means that one teaspoon of one of these chemicals is enough to kill one and a quarter billion honeybees. Mm. Um, and just in the UK, which is a small country, we use about 110,000 kilos of these chemicals every year at present. Mm. California uses much more, I think, although it's hard to get precise figures. Mm. Uh, certainly enough, enough chemicals to kill every bee on the planet several times over. We know they're really toxic and we know they're in the bees' food. And we also have, there's been lots of research showing that um, the, the concentrations in the bees' food are enough to, to do them harm. They have, as well as at higher doses killing the poor bees, at slightly lower doses, sublethal doses, as they're known, um, they reduce the lifespan of the queens, they reduce their egg laying, they 
uh, mess up the immune system of the bees. They mess up the navigation of the bees so they get lost when they're out foraging. Um, remember, these attack the brain of the poor bee. And as I explained earlier, bees are really clever as insects go, and they rely on those on that cleverness to survive. Um, and unfortunately, these chemicals uh, knock that out. Um, so, so there's really good evidence that these things are harmful, not just to bees, but to any insect. And as a result, the European Union decided just the week before last to ban most of these chemicals, the three most widely used versions of neonicotinoids, as of the end of 2018, will be banned in Europe, um, which is fantastic. Fantastic. Um, yeah. But there's a big but or several buts. You guys, unfortunately, um, have still got them. Uh, there's no sign at all of the US taking any steps to regulate uh, use of those chemicals. In fact, uh, the state of Ontario in Canada is really the only other place outside of Europe that's doing anything about this. That's bad news. And there are tons of these chemicals being used in developing countries as well, tropical countries where there's huge insect biodiversity. And it, it breaks my heart to think of what's being wiped out. But then even in Europe, where you might think, well, we're sitting pretty, you know, our insects are going to be uh, enjoying life from now on. But but actually, new chemicals are coming onto the market, which which look quite similar, I suspect might turn out to be just as harmful. Um, if you look at the history of pesticide use since the 1940s, when when synthetic pesticides were first introduced, we just seem to go round and round in circles. We bring in a new type of chemical 20 or 30 years Later, um, it emerges that they're really harmful to the environment or to people or whatever, and they get banned. So we had the organochlorides like DDT. We had the organophosphates. We had things called carbamates, which most people haven't heard of. Um, uh, and now we have the neonicotinoids. But we don't seem to learn any lessons from this, which kind of drives me nuts. Uh, at what point are we going to think, hang on a minute, maybe, maybe we should be looking for another solution that isn't uh, a pesticide, that isn't a chemical that kills all insects. Right. Uh, that seems to me long, long overdue. But unfortunately, uh, the kind of mindset of, of most farmers today, it's just that it's not, I'm not blaming the farmers. It's, it's, they're just following advice, but they're, they've been brought up using pesticides and seeing pesticides as the solution. So if you ban one pesticide, they just want to look, they want, want to know what you can sell them to replace it with. Yeah. The neonicotinoids we were also told were quite short lived and it, mm. it took a very long time for anyone to realize that they were actually accumulating in soils and leaching into streams and rivers. Uh, and in the same way, as you say, glyphosate was, we were told that pretty much as soon as it touched the soil, it, it degraded. Mm. And, uh, and many of us kind of naively went along with that. But clearly, that it, we now know that, that it isn't true. It seems to be, in some circumstances, quite persistent. There seems to be good evidence that there's plenty of glyphosate in human food. Um, Including was, breast milk, by the way. There was a study from Germany relatively recently where they analyzed um, urine for glyphosate. It was a really big sample size. I think they looked at a couple of thousand people. Uh, and they could detect glyphosate in, I think it was 98% of Germans in their urine. Um, and quite a lot of them were urinating glyphosate at concentrations higher than the, 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 the legal limit in, in, in streams and rivers. Some people speculate that things like um, ADHD in children, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease might be linked to exposure to 
some of these pesticides. You know, neonicotinoids, for example, are neurotoxins. So it's not impossible that they might affect our brains if we're exposed to them long term. But we we honestly don't know. Um, I don't. You know, nobody can give you a definitive answer. So yeah, we are guinea pigs, but in in the world's worst experiment. You were author of a book called Gardening for Bumblebees. You are also founder of the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. Give us hope. Give us direction. What would you like to see us do in our own home gardens? What would you like to see us advocate for in our towns and municipalities to help to help the bumblebees and all insects in any way we can? Well, I don't know if I can stick to five, but anyway, um, (laughs) let's be positive. It's quite easy to make your garden bee friendly or just wildlife friendly. There's loads of advice on which flowers you might grow. So so this is a really simple starting point. Um, In fact, my um, I have a YouTube channel where I I, if anyone cares to have a look, where I wander around my own garden pointing to the flowers that are really good for bees. Basically, traditional cottage garden flowers tend to be really good. Lots of herbs things like marjoram and lavender and uh, rosemary and thyme are fantastic uh, for bees. So grow bee-friendly flowers. Don't mow your lawn quite so often. So I grow my lawn very long and shaggy whenever I can. And my wife complains and does eventually chop it down. But at least a lot of the time it's in flower. People think that a lawn is pure grass, but usually if you stop cutting it, flowers will spring up. Don't use any pesticides in your garden. There's a really simple one. You don't need pesticides in a garden setting, you know, whether or not we need them in farmland is 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 a a, a good debate to have. But um, you absolutely, I, I have a big garden and, you know, I'm busy, I've got a full-time job, but I still manage to grow loads of fruit and veg and pretty flowers without using any pesticides. Any damn fool can do it. It's, it's nothing complicated. You know, if you've got a few aphids um, on your roses or on your beans, leave them and um, I almost guarantee that a ladybird or a hoverfly uh, will come along and eat them. Bee hotels are also really effective ways to encourage bees in your garden and really fun for children to watch. A bee hotel uh, sounds rather grand, but all you, it really is is a bunch of holes in a piece of wood or a bundle of bits of sawn up bamboo, which solitary bees like to nest in. There are many solitary bees that live in our, our gardens and that like to nest in horizontal holes. Uh, so you can buy them or you can make them yourself if you've got a drill and a piece of wood. It's really easy. So if we get, did all of those things, if we could get enough people on board to make all of our gardens wildlife friendly and all of our parks and road verges and roundabouts, then basically our entire cities, we'd have turned them into these vast nature reserves, which would be really cool. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been inspirational, and I am off to once again see where I can add more flowers to my home garden. (laughs) Excellent. Dave Goulson is a British biologist, conservationist, and professor of biology at the University of Sussex. A gardener, husband, father, and bumblebee expert, Dave founded the Bumblebee Conservation Trust and has written widely on the state of insects and bees specifically in our world. His books, which are as entertaining as they are enlightening and inspiring, include Gardening for Bumblebees, A Sting in the Tail, My Adventures with Bumblebees, A Buzz in the Meadow, The Natural History of a French Farm, and Bee Quest. 
He is also the founder of the International Bumblebee Conservation Trust. In this National Pollinator Week in the United States, I feel compelled to say that in our gardens, at very least, each and every day is better for time set aside in the appreciation and wonder of the many insects and birds who enliven our places beyond measure. They make possible in some way every flower we gaze at, every green bean or pinch of herb we nibble on too. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways that people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible by you. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. To read more about Dave Goulson's work and see many beautiful photos of the bumblebees and pollinators we live amongst, head over to cultivatingplace.com. While you're there, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.